Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I mean, if, if somebody comes to us looking to buy a specific policy on a specific part of their body, we'll generally try and talk them out of it. Because if you are a pianist saying, I want my fingers insured, well, it's pretty difficult to play the piano if you've got no arms, no legs, no eyes. We generally try and convince them to purchase a policy which relates to the ability to fulfil the occupation, not choose the body parts. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Peter Laidlaw, and we will be discussing the weird and esoteric world of personal accident insurance. Peter joined Atrium, the Lloyds underwriter, in 1993, and he currently heads up the accident and health underwriting team there. In a Grace Church survey of 2016, Peter was voted in the top 10 of all underwriters by his peers, which is, under any circumstances, a mighty impressive achievement. He specialises in underwriting a variety of risks, such as kidnap and ransom, medical expenses and travel insurance, and of course, personal accident insurance, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. We always start with the, the, the following question, which is, how did you, how did you end up in insurance? What, what was it that lured you in? I was, um, I was studying down at Portsmouth University, and I was dating a girl down there whose father happened to be in the shipping industry. And as I got towards the end of my studies, he started to take an interest in my prospects and, uh, and asked me basically what work experience I'd had to date. And um, now in the morning before studies, I was stacking shelves in Marks and Spencers. And in the evenings, I used to basically sell uh, telesales for life insurance down the phone. Um, and when I sort of mentioned this is my work experience to him, uh, the following week, he sent a copy of the Lloyd's List, the shipping paper down on the Tuesday when they got the job adverts with a job circled in it. And um, so I wrote out one CV. I typed up one covering letter and sent it off. And I have had an interview the following day, got the job, and I'm still there today, 29 years on. Those were the days, eh, weren't they? But it is wonderful to hear that it was love that brought you into the world of insurance. I, I tell you what drew me in. If, if I go back to the early 90s, um, we didn't have designated class underwriters like we do now. Um, every underwriter looked at every type of risk. And there are only three underwriters on the box. So, you know, at one moment I'd be seeing uh, a liability risk, the next minute a credit risk, the next minute a satellite risk. And, and the diversity and, and the difference in, in everything that come across the desk on a daily basis, and you had no idea what was going to hit the desk. I just found it absolutely exhilarating. And, uh, and, and, and working in the room at Lloyd's as well. I mean, when you're a youngster, it really is uh, an amazing place and an environment, you know, the, the, the buzz and the vibrancy of it. I mean, I was absolutely sucked in, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, anyway, you've ended up as uh, the head of the accident and health underwriting team uh, at Atrium. So kind of, let, let's begin with uh, the simple question, which is, what is personal accident insurance? Well, personal accident is actually exactly that. It's, it's accidents of people. However, a personal accident account within the context of Lloyd's would include a whole array of classes, uh, including both accidental death. Sorry, noting first and foremost, we can't cover life. So Lloyd's, uh, obviously we have designated life syndicates, but in, in basically general syndicates, we're not allowed to cover life. So, so anything else that you can think of that would affect a person, in effect, is, is what sort of falls into accident health. So 
you know, permanent disability, temporary absence from work through accident or sickness, um, medical expenses, critical illness, and anything else you can think of that affects your health. Um, it includes travel, it includes um, trips to dangerous areas, all that sort of stuff. So anywhere where you're, you as a human are at risk, but in effect fall into a personal accident account. And, and, and what type of persons is the insurance targeted at? Presumably it's sort of high net worth individuals, is it? Yeah, exactly. So the everyday risks like you and I are not really the risks that end up in Lloyd's underwriter's desk. It would normally be something slightly unusual about the risk. So a good example is uh, a large investment company is, is putting a major investment, injecting hundreds of millions of pounds into a company. Um, and a large part of that value in the intellectual property resides with the owner of the company. So if they've put in for a five-year investment of hundreds of millions, they need to be sure that that person with that, that IP that gives that company that value is there. And that key man type coverage is pretty typical of what we would do. So, so that's the business context, but personal accident insurance also has a, a reputation for dealing with the, the, sort of the, the world of celebrity as well and, and sports. Exactly the same. It's very similar exposure that exists with the premiership footballer. So if a team makes a major investment to purchase a striker from another football team for £100 million, and then the player then arrives at his new team. Now, he signs a five-year contract and they agree to pay him whatever, hundreds of thousands a week. They two into that contract. He climbs into his nice shiny red car that he's bought with his, with his signing on bonus, crashes it into a wall and he can never play a day's football again. Now, you've lost that £100 million. He is an asset. So as a consequence, you know, you've just lost £100 million off your balance sheet. So quite often when these very large sums insured, the teams will basically buy out a policy to make sure that if anything happens to that player, that they basically wouldn't lose the initial investment that they made. And same again with Hollywood stars as well. If, if there's a, uh, you know, the, the, the personal accident insurance is all, always sort of, you know, the, the Marilyn Monroe's insuring her legs or Julia Roberts insuring her smile or kind of all, all of those sorts of stories that, that, that Paul Miller highlights on LinkedIn regularly, um, that that all falls within your remit as well, does it? It does. And, and I mean, the entertainment and the music sector is obviously a very, these are very large earning people um, and they make a lot of money for other people. And so generally these will be third party purchases. So they'll be covering again something they deem to be an asset. Now, where it really is pertinent, if you're in the middle of a trilogy of films, Okay, and then after two films, obviously, somebody disappears and you can't finish your third film. Yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of financial risk there. Um, when you talk about things like uh, Marilyn Monroe's legs and things like that, I mean, these, these are, are policies that are done for publicity reasons, not because they're genuinely worried about the legs only. I mean, if, if somebody comes to us looking to buy a specific policy on a specific part of their body, we'll generally try and talk them out of it because if you are a pianist saying, I want my fingers insured, well, it's pretty difficult to play the piano if you've got no arms, no legs, no eyes. There's various other things that can stop you being a top pianist, not just your fingers. So we generally try and convince them to purchase a policy which relates to their ability to fulfill the occupation, not choose the body parts. I mean, I think one of the, um, the more unusual ones that we've seen and the ones that generally where you'll see them in the press they are generally a marketing campaign i think that you know the most weird risk we've ever seen um i think was again without mentioning any names but the motivation behind the purchase you'll grasp as we go through something 
So a company was really well known for the fact that they stocked better wine than their competitors. And they really sort of played on this. And they basically came to us and said, look, our wine taster is the key person here. And we'd like to ensure our wine tasters taste buds. And we'd like to buy 10 million pounds worth of, of, of coverage for our wine tasters taste buds. Now, this was a wine taster that was probably earning you know, tens of thousands of pounds a year and couldn't warrant a 10 million pound policy. So, so a policy was put together by the market. I mean, it actually wasn't led by us, but where they basically put a loss of the test, taste of smell uh, for half a million pounds worth of coverage. And then they also gave them another nine and a half million pounds worth of coverage for dismemberment of the tongue, which was pretty dramatic and very remote. But it made the policy affordable for them to buy. This is in effect like a marketing spend. They can now go to press and say, our chief wine taster has their taste buds and tongue insured for £10 million. And the advertising they got off that was worth multiples of the premium they had to pay us for that policy. I presume that was before COVID, when taste and smell suddenly becomes relevant. <laughs> it, was, it was a long time before COVID. <laughs> and, and you've already mentioned that uh, it's likely to be a third party that buys the insurance. So the football company or the Hollywood production company or uh, the company where the executive works. Is that right? So when somebody is doing very well themselves and they've got enough money, they don't necessarily think about these things. But if you are the agent for um, a celebrity, your entire revenue comes from that celebrity. So if something happens to that celebrity, you lose your revenue. So it's normally somebody else that is worried. So if you are a studio, TV studio, and your one of your largest revenue streams is from... I'll make up a TV program, the Graham Norton show. Now, the fact is that if something happens to Graham Norton, there's not going to be a Graham Norton show. And you've probably pre-sold that to the network for, for another two seasons in advance. So you've actually got contracts there. So you've got guaranteed monies. And these are to protect that. You're saying, well, actually, we, now we have these contracts. If anything does happen to Graham, I want that money anyway, because th- we would have had this money. So it's quite often that the studio house... Or, or the agents of these, these people will go and buy coverage just to make sure that the, the known revenue stream for the future will come to them regardless. And, uh, I mean, you've touched there upon what, what sort of losses are covered uh, by the policy, and you're talking about lost revenue stream in the future. What other things are covered by the policy normally? So, well, with something like the TV production at the end of the day, it's the cost of, of closing it down, paying the staff, putting it, and if it's if they're temporarily unwell and they've just got to shut it for a short period, they've got to keep everybody obviously in effect on furlough um, and, you know, just just keep the ticking over and, and mothball it for a short period of time. Um, if the something more serious happens and that, and that show's never going to be shown again and they're not going to basically film it, then, yes, it's just a case of, sh- of shutting it down and, and dealing with those costs. In, in that sense, is it... Can it be regarded as a sort of business interruption policy, kind of where, where the business interruption is, is, is caused by the death of an individual or, or, or not? Sort of. I mean, when we cover um, the TV and film-related stars, we're covering normally just the cast, and we normally only cover them for the more serious element, and it causes the abandonment. So on, on the contingency policies, yes, the delay is, an, is for want of a better term, is, is a business interruption policy. Quite often there'll be uh, a hybrid between a contingency film production policy type stuff and what we do. Because um, the contingency and the film production policies 
cover a whole array of other perils, whether the place burns down, whether there's a, a storm, whether they get shut down by the civil authority. You know, there's all sorts of other perils covered, whereas we actually only cover generally the death or disablement of the key individuals, which means that obviously the costs are, are much larger as a consequence of shutting the whole thing down. And, it, and the whole, um, everything that's been done to date has to be abandoned. So if you've already spent 20 million producing that TV programme to that point, there's 20 million down the drain. So hopefully the risk is very low, but potentially the losses are very, very high. Yes, basically. I mean, we, 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 we're at the volatile end. We're not at the sort of the attritional end of, this, of that type of in, in, in that industry. Um, but yeah, I mean, third parties is largely purchasing for, you know, you've got, obviously, we're talking about the, the film and TV, but in the sports is obviously the most relevant. But there's even a TV channel, for example, in Spain will generate... 10 times more advertising revenue during the Formula One if Fernando Alonso is racing. So they will buy a policy to say that if Fernando Alonso doesn't race, we want to be able to collect because our our revenue stream would be X many million because the whole of Spain will watch TV if Fernando Alonso is racing. And whereas if he's not racing, the answer is TV revenues fall through the floor. So there's quite often things that you would never ordinarily think of, whereas a third party has a genuine financial interest in the well-being of an individual, and they wouldn't even know that policy exists. And, and is there a difference in approach in different parts of the world? Is this, is this something which the, the, the US uses a lot, or a lot more than the rest of the world, or what, what, what sort of differences do you see around the world? Largely what we, where we see it all from is the United States, obviously. Mainly also because of the quantum. <laughs> so what people have paid for TV and film in the, in the UK is, is a fraction of that in the US. Um, if you think some of these, even the talk show hosts, some of them are earning best part of a million bucks a show. You know, this is you wouldn't hear of that in the United Kingdom. I mean, we're talking largely unique risks. A lot of these situations, um, it's, it's not an off off the shelf policy, at least in terms of pricing. So, how do you go about the process of assessing the price of the policy? Uh, yeah, I mean, the fact is, it on some of, on a lot of the business. Um, if it's a third-party purchase, the amount of information we can get is somewhat times limited. So if it's relating to a film production, they will have done a cast medical. So the fact is we'll have some up-to-date medical information for which we can make an assessment. In many instances where a tour operator does, does music tours, it's basically advanced monies to an artist for them to go and play concerts for the next 24 months, and they, they pay them in advance these monies so now they have a genuine vested interest in that person's got to survive to perform to make them back their money in in those instances where it's confidential so i mean we we will know what their age is we'll know some there'll be certain amount of uh, information in the public domain regarding their health but you know we're somewhat shooting in the dark so you'd be rating that an awful lot higher than you would do for someone who had full medical information and then it comes around to capacity so if they're buying $10 million, well, there's about 10 other companies out there that basically will give you a quote and a price. If you're talking about getting 50 million, 60 million, 100 million, well, there's not many games in town, in which case you know, there's, there's, a, there's a price to put that capacity out there. And that's where we basically see obviously much higher rates. And obviously because also the volatility. 
and, and also that then links in with Lloyd's as well. I, I mean, Lloyd's has that flexibility, which other markets may not have. Is, is, is that fair to say? If you're an American company, you wouldn't want to take on $100 million because some celebrities wants to go base jumping. You know, you're just not going to do it. But the great thing about Lloyd's, obviously, is with the co-participation, it means that the syndicalization of the risk means that everyone's just taking a small part, and yet it's largely made by one or two decision makers. There'll be one or two leaders under the facility, and once both have agreed that the price is adequate, that risk will be bound on behalf of the market, and they can get their decision the same day. So it means that you know the client gets an answer very rapidly, um, and they don't have to trawl around 20 different insurance companies and still to this day, you know, decisions like this will be made at the box in minutes. You know, this doesn't take weeks of, of calculations. We know what sort of price we would charge for a single day risk of that nature. And, and that's the amazing thing about Lloyd's, isn't it? The, they say the speed and the flexibility. The fact is, there, there is now, obviously, there's a huge uh, degree of reliance on data. But I think uh, there's a book by Jack Welsh, which basically wrote called From the Gut, uh, which is a almost a Bible to me. And it basically said that, you know, 40% of the decision you make is gut instinct and 40% of it is experience. And the other 20% is analysis. So, so I'm, I'm thinking of, of, as a Lloyd's underwriter that's been at it for sort of near, near on 29 years, I sort of ticked the first two boxes. So we think we should be able to get it right. And some of these uh, celebrities are high risk because, well, how can one put it politely, because of their own recreational choices. Um, let's put it that way. Um, how do you as an underwriter kind of protect yourself from that particular risk? And, and what sort of exclusions do you put on the policies? As a rule, if it's a third party purchase, there's a genuine need to cover the person and you do not have control over them. So if it's a personal policy, generally personal policies as a rule will exclude drink, drugs, suicide, you know, willful intent, danger, all sorts of different things that are within your control. When it's a third-party purchase and they don't have the same level of control, there's quite often a desire to have these parents covered. Personally, I think that if it's one of those that if they don't lead that sort of lifestyle, they shouldn't be worried about the exclusion being in there anyway. And if they do have that sort of lifestyle, the answer is I'm going to exclude it anyway. So as a rule, we generally try and put these exclusions on the standard nowadays. Now, it, it depends where you are in the market cycle. I can promise you, if you go back five, six years ago, the fact is these exclusions were happily sort of removed to win the business. Whereas today, where the market is, is now slightly harder than it was a few years ago, if somebody comes looking to deliberately remove a drink and drug exclusion or to remove the suicide exclusion, it just sort of raises alarm bells as to why that would be the case. And you hinted there the fact that obviously this is a market which goes from soft to hard um, as well, and, and what exclusions you can put in will change depending upon that. I mean, what, what sort of trends are you seeing in personal accident insurance at the moment? It's been weakening and weakening and weakening for many years, and we underperformed really from 16 through 18 anyway. Um, and that's even without COVID. I mean, it was we were sort of bumbling along at the bottom of the market cycle. Now, things are improving. I mean, rates have improved. So we've had sort of a rate increase upon rate increase, albeit nowhere near enough in a lot of cases. The pace of, of change could be, is just slow because there's still an abundance of capacity out there. And I mean, it's, it's just basic economic supply and demand. Now, because of the poor results and because all the other classes are producing such great results at the moment, 
I suspect there will be a, why are we bothering with this line of business any longer? You know, it's too difficult to make any money. The downside, having looked at what happened with COVID is too great. So I suspect there will be some withdrawals from the market and it will therefore hopefully ramp up the recovery of the excellent health market going forward. There is a, a curveball in this actually, is that whilst I talk about COVID losses, there's also what we call um, positive COVID. <laughs> so if you think, you know, we're covering accident risks, well, the accident rate for the last 12 months is plummeted. There's not as many cars on the road. You know, people aren't moving around. Nobody's flying anywhere. So, so for the last two years, forgetting the, the sort of losses that came from the initial outbreak of COVID, the remainder of the book looks better than it otherwise would. So what people are now thinking is, you know, is it fixed? And the answer is it's, it's not. It's just it's, you're looking at false numbers. I mean, unfortunately, when the accident rates return to normal, we'll still be underpriced the exposure that we have. Just a word about claims as well. I mean, how are uh, losses calculated? Are, are they fixed some policies so that, you know, the, the, the quantum is triggered automatically? So I'm thinking for an example about, you know, let's say uh, there's a TV series where the main character is played by an actor, who should we call uh, John Clooney? And let's say a policy is taken out on his uh, life or permanent disability for an indemnity of £10 million, say, for the sake of argument. Let's say that he dies, but the new actor, Leonardo de Smith, is even better when viewing figures actually go up. So for, for, for a TV company's perspective, things have improved. I mean, in that situation, do you as an insurer argue that there's been no loss or, or, or do you have to pay out the 10 million anyway? This is a delicate and difficult topic often because um, we write both benefit policies and we do also write policies on net ascertained loss basis. So if we take a TV series where, it's like my previous example. So let's take... Um, Graham Norton. So if something happens to Graham Norton and the show's got ratings of X many million, something happens to Graham Norton and the next show is the Jimmy Carr show and it has twice as many viewers. The fact is they still do not have the Graham Norton show and the Graham Norton show produced a revenue. The fact they have another show, which is called something different and makes more money, is irrelevant as far as they're concerned. And they would deem indemnity to be the fact that they've lost the revenue that relates to that show. And going back to what's previously said, often these are where they make their money is the pre-sold to the network. The people who make the TV programs in a lot of cases are not the people that are broadcasting the programs. So if they pre-bought them, uh, okay, and they said, we'll take the next two series and we'll pay you 25 million for the series, etc. The moment something happens to that individual, those contracts are in effect frustrated and therefore they have a financial loss. Going back to your original question, really, when we have benefit policies, we do the financial underwriting up front. So we look at what costs are and where there are contracts, where there have been advances in terms of monies, etc., to make sure that we are not over-indemnifying by giving a benefit policy. So usually disability and accidental death will be a benefit policy. So we'll make sure that the money that they are asking to insure for is commensurate with what the loss will be. On some of the film and TV and uh, music type stuff, it's often on a net ascertained loss, a proper indemnity. And then, and then it will be what money have you lost at that point? And then what contractual obligations were there, which are now in effect frustrated. And those are basically calculated at point of claim. Now, even on those, we, we prefer to financially underwrite them up front because we don't want to sell somebody a $50 million net ascertained loss policy, indemnity policy if we think it won't pay that. Because I'd be really annoyed 
if I've paid for a 50 million policy and the most it could ever actually pay out is 10 million. So we're pretty hot on making sure that the policy limits they buy are commensurate what we think we'll pay as well, because otherwise all we're doing is funding a lawyer's pocket, really. Nothing wrong with that, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And a couple of trivial questions to uh, to, to finish off with. Um, First one, do you get to meet the celebrities and sports people? Um, No, and would have no interest. I mean, when these hit our desks, they may as well be described as cars or boats or anything. We We don't view them as anything other than obviously the asset that's being insured. I think if you start doing that, you'll start letting your judgment, some unconscious bias come into your way of thinking. So the good thing is that most of these people, like if they're in the pop and music world, I wouldn't know who they were anyway. <laughs> and and the second trivial question is, uh, if you're watching, say, a, a Formula One or something like that, does it affect your enjoyment of watching it, knowing that, that you are insuring 10 of the drivers, say? Uh, the answer is, yeah, we, we don't have that many on the grid anymore, but we do have some, and you are absolutely right. Every time there was a crash, okay, the first thing, obviously, you worry about is that is the, the individual, and is he okay? And the second question you ask yourself is, do we have him on the room? <laughs> um, thank you very much. And so finally, um, you've obviously had a very long and uh, successful career as an underwriter. Um, so what would you say if, if a young person came to you and said, I'm thinking about becoming an underwriter. I'm thinking about getting into insurance. What sort of pearl of wisdom would you pass on to them? I would never discourage anyone from coming into insurance, certainly in the London market anyway. It's been a great career for me. And and, uh, what I will say is if you're looking at underwriting, you've got to work out whether you uh, feel absolutely comfortable in the decision-making that you do. Um, We're paid to make good decisions, okay? And that's, and that's the only bit that's within our control is to make the good decisions. As long as I've made a good decision, regardless of what the outcome is, I feel happy because I've done what I've been paid to do. Now, we can't control the outcomes. Only, only God can do that. And, and, and you know, sometimes the, the, these things go against us. And if you're going to wear that at night, if that's going to stress you out, if that's going to keep you awake, do not come into underwriting. I mean, become a broker or do something else. But the fact is, if it starts to cause you sleepless nights because you've taken on a risk or because it's had a loss, then I would suggest that then don't come into insurance. But otherwise, I think it's such a fantastic working environment. Working noise is an absolute privilege. The, the buzz of the underwriting room is enough to draw anybody in. And I'm hoping in this hybrid world, obviously, the underwriting room is, is there for many years to come because... I've only ever worked in an underwriting box. I've never worked in the office at all. So for me, it's um, if, if it's not there, I think um, I find it very difficult. Peter, that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.